long do you think it takes him to like recover his career? Has he? <laughs> Secret agent man, Secret agent man, they've given you a number and taken away your name. Okay, then welcome back to Enter the Real World. Com. This is Secret Agent Men, a podcast discussing Jason Bourne, James Bond, and Ethan Hunt, Mission Impossible. Uh, this is episode 5, Mission Impossible 3. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined for this endeavour, as always, by my fellow Secret Agent Man, Ben Phillips. How are you? I'm good. Congratulations to Star Wars to date this episode. Uh, just grossing a billion dollars at the box office. <laughs> Only just. Almost a month after its release. Do you remember when Endgame made how much in its own? Opening. It was like six hundred fifty million dollars in like an opening weekend. Mm. I remember. I remember. Like at the start of two thousand nineteen, I was just like, "Disney have these five huge movies out next year. Which one do we think is going to be the highest grossing one?" And no one was expecting Endgame. Really, I think I was. I just I wanted to be somewhat conservative about it. I don't think anyone could have seen Star Wars being one of the worst coming. But I mean, I mean, we say one of the worst. I mean, didn't all the others make a billion? Oh, all of them made made a billion. But yeah. I'm just intrigued whether or not. I'm uh, sure it will eventually outperform most of them, but yeah, for a Star Wars film, it opens soft. But this is not a Star Wars podcast, as much as you may be still looking things up. This is Secret Agent Man, this is Mission Impossible 3, released May of 2006. So, when was Mission Impossible 2 again? 2001? 2000? 2000. Six years since the last Mission Impossible. He has been trying to make this movie. He sure has, and Born Identity and Born supremacy have come out in the meantime you know there is some shaky cam happening and i guess i mean anything is more like reined in than john woo's like backflip kick extravaganza but there's a little bit more this is tactical op shooting type stuff happening that's not necessarily what Bourne is but i feel we have some form of reaction happening here for the first time yeah i mean like this movie feels like it's I mean, it's kind of reacting both to Alias and to what Bourne has done to the to the genre. Well, yes, J.J. Abrams has rocked up in his film debut, coming off of Alias, and Lost had it started? Lost has finished two seasons at this point. Oh, okay, okay. So coming off Alias and Lost, he makes his film debut. He brings with him Alex Kurtzman and Robert Orkey from Alias, who had written The Island. They would go on to do Transformers, Star Trek, all kinds of stuff. I feel those two get attached to, like, a million different movies all the time, franchise ones. Like, I think they did Amazing Spider-Man. You can kind of tell that they've all worked together because there is a sort of, I don't know, coherence to it stylistically and it is very in JJ's wheelhouse mystery boxes that go nowhere and just sort of it feel I don't want to say it feels like a big episode of television but a bit like that <laughs> I mean I mean that's the thing this this feels like a reboot for Mission Impossible in some ways because but God knows it needed it after number two yeah I think you're almost a, a reboot by default if there's been more than five years between films <laughs> uh, but then also like I mean obviously JJ Abrams is coming from TV I think at this point he had the pilot to Lost and maybe like four or five disparate episodes of Alias to his name. It's not like he had this illustrious directing career beforehand. He directed like a few episodes in the first seasons of Alias and then the pilot to Lost, which is obviously huge. Like, the best thing he's ever directed. Sure, yeah. I don't think he's a very good director, so I'm not really going to fight you on, on yeah, his best um, work. Oh, and, and he also did two episodes of Felicity, which, I mean, that's, yes. that's the bigger tie to this movie, really. Wow, yes. So it's two hours and six minutes, so it's slightly longer than Mission Impossible 2? I can't remember now, I so I forgot. To I mean, write. they've all been kind of like a flat two hours, really, yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, though, $150 million budget, so only 25 more than Mission Impossible 2, and I think there are reasons for that, which we'll get to. And alleged... I don't know if this is still true. Allegedly the highest budget ever handed to a first-time film director. Probably is true. Like, Disney don't hand the keys to 
people who've never directed a movie before. Like, yeah. yeah, no, they mostly they pick indie people, so like it's a huge bump for them. But they're people oh, who yeah. are going from fifteen million dollar budgets to, yeah. or maybe probably even less than fifteen million to be honest. Um, but no, it's one of those things where like obviously Lost is this huge hit at this mm, point. It's sure. it's finishing its second season. There is a reference to the show in the uh, in the credits of this film. Is there now? Yes, if you were if you were following along with one of the reality games or whatever it was that's going on between seasons, oh, there's yeah. a reference to the Hanso Foundation in the credits where they get special thanks for the movie. So this made three hundred ninety-eight million dollars, <laughs> which is almost a hundred and fifty million dollars less than Mission Impossible Two. Now there are some notes on that that I will get to shortly, also tied to the budget coming down, I would say. But before that, there's how did we get here in the first place? And obviously John Woo was not asked to return. As I said, the only Mission Impossible director to not at least be asked. Brian De Palma said no, and I guess J.J. Abrams said no for four, but... He's still involved in the franchise yeah. to this day. Like, he is still a producer on every single movie. It's what Bad Robot does nowadays. Is He's start... a better producer than he is director. That's I mean, that's the, that's the thing is, like, he, he funds these movies. I don't actually know what his involvement is with the franchise post this movie. Um, I don't know, he's in the room, he's bouncing ideas. Bad Robot are involved in every movie post this point. Isn't one of his parents a producer? Or both of his parents producers? Like, Possibly. I heard this like criticism against him in regards to uh, Rise of the Skywalker that, like, of course the guy whose parents are Hollywood producers and who got his son a gig writing Spider-Man wants to do a story about legacy and nepotism and family. <laughs> <laughs> like so briefly David Fincher was signed up to do this movie hot damn I know and he pieced out on it some of his wild ideas were the sale of body parts in Africa some sort of black market let's buy organs let's sell arms I don't fucking know literal arms dealers he wanted Sylvester Stallone to be the villain sign me up for that fucking movie this I presume was in that kind of like period where he wasn't really making movies in between yeah. Panic Room and Zodiac but yeah it's one of those things where like because Fincher would have been insane he probably would have pissed off everyone because he's such an exacting person. Oh, it's God. why Tom Cruise and David Fincher making a movie together. Yeah. <laughs> it's why like every single big budget movie of his has fallen apart. Like it's why we'll never see his take on World War Z two for the best, most likely. So Joe Carnahan was then asked aboard. He did Narc, which was huge. Oh, not huge, but well received. And he spent fifteen months working on Mission Impossible three. He cast Kenneth Branagh who was going to play a Oklahoma City bomber-esque character as the villain. You can see how one might leap from Branner to Philip Seymour Hoffman, but the character, very different. He also cast Carrie-Anne Moss and Scarlett Johansson after uh, Tandy Newton declined to return. But then in 2004, he also quit and he was not happy with the tone that they were going for. So you may remember I said this movie came out in 2006 and Carnahan quit two years before that. Uh, they were going to start shooting one month from, from when he quit. So many delays were happening. And then Cruz tapped J.J. Abrams famously, like we've said it on this podcast, you've probably heard it all over the internet. He basically binge watched two seasons of Alias and was like, I like this, come direct Mission Impossible 3. And while he agreed, he did have his commitments to TV. So they had to push back filming by a year, at which point Kenneth Branagh, Carrie Ann Moss and Scarlett Johansson all had to leave because they had to have careers. And then Paramount only fully greenlit the film just about a year before it released. And the conditions included trimming the budget, in particular Tom Cruise's salary, and they hired a new cast. Kerry Russell replaced Scarlett Johansson's character, and they, they brought in Michelle Monaghan. Is it Michelle? Yeah, it's Michelle Monaghan to... I mean, obviously she doesn't have... Carrie Ann Moss was going to be a sort of surrogate for Tandy Newton, wherein she is both a love interest and an agent. But instead they just dropped the agent aspect and, and Michelle Monaghan comes in there. And then, while promoting the movie, before we get to Tom Cruise, one of their marketing ideas was to place audio boxes in <laughs> uh, boxes that dispense the LA Times, and they would play the theme song for Mission Impossible. And many people probably justifiably thought, these look like bombs. And <laughs> bomb squads had to detonate several of them. But they kept them out there in circulation anyway. So, allegedly, Tom Cruise asked Comedy Central to stop showing a South Park episode 
word about Scientology, or he wouldn't promote this film, that he bent over backwards to have made, turned down film, like, he turned down Jason Bourne because he believed in Mission Impossible. But whether it's true or not, and he denies it, and his reps deny it, and of course they're gonna deny it, in response, there was a boycott of this movie organised by South Park fans. I don't know how much of an impact that had on the box office take versus the general Tom Cruise jumps up and down on a sofa shenanigans that were happening, but yeah, certainly a massive sort of dip in the Tom Cruise blockbuster stakes, and I believe this is the lowest grossing one in the whole franchise. Yeah, I mean, like, what? So uh, the movie he promoted while he jumped on the sofa was War of the Worlds, which did almost $600 million worldwide, and then, like, a year later, this movie just about hits 400 so, like, we're already seeing it kind of, like, the it's not paying back yeah. what Tom Cruise should be doing, and he kind of stays away and licks his wounds for quite a while after this. Who the fuck watched Night and Day? Not one person. I mean, I mean, the most significant thing that happens in between is he does Valkyrie, which is where he meets Chris from Macquarie. That's the most significant thing that happens after this movie in the kind of, like, fallow period of yeah. Tom Cruise's career. He does his cameo in Tropic Thunder that goes down well, but, you know, his, his sort of him-led movies are, are just tanking left and right. Also, fun fact, this is the last non-superhero movie to kick off the summer season. It has been nothing but superhero stuff since then. What was 2007? Was that Spider-Man 3? <laughs> Probably. Maybe Dark Knight? No. Batman Begins? Oh, Dark Knight was quite early, actually, yeah. Oh, so okay. like... I don't know. One of those, but yeah. I believe it will be true in 2020 as well, but it certainly was true up to 2019. That, uh... Jesus. Yeah, superhero movies have just dominated. Right, so our agent for this mission, Ethan Hunt, is back, and he's becoming unhinged. This is the character, not Tom Cruise the person, of course. Yeah, we see a more of a wild man version of Ethan. Remarkably, when he was doing batflip kicks and, and all sorts of stuff in Mission Impossible 2, he still had a sense of, you know, zen about him. Still flashing the smile, and the smile is is coming out here as well. But he loses his, his cool quite a lot in this movie. He's also doing more shooting after he didn't touch a gun or didn't fire a bullet in Mission Impossible 1. He did his gung-fu, his, his gun-carters in, in Mission Impossible 2. I mean, there's, yeah. there was a lot of guns in Mission Impossible 2, but yeah. the fight, it still does come down to, like, a couple of bullets and just lots yeah. of missing stuff. Whereas this one feels so much more tactical Yeah, it's like, oh, is Ethan, like, uh, like, it felt like that was so far removed from what his job was in the early ones. It's like, he is a infiltration specialist, a actor, almost, and now it's like, yeah, his primary expertise is he's a military shooter it's interesting. He has his stuff as a pretend family man, you know, try it. Well, not pretend, you know, he is legitimately trying to settle down and pass well, for a normal is, human. <laughs> yeah, like he's retired at some point in between the second movie and this movie, yeah. or at least retired from field duty. He's in active training for kind of people within the IMF, but he doesn't, he tells his wife that, or his fiance, sorry, that he's working he for like tra- the transport bureau in, in the city that they're in. They're in Virginia, which is, of course, where the CIA is, but I mean, the IMF, I guess it's CIA adjacent. I don't know, but I think there is a throwaway line at the beginning, like, oh, I can't believe he drove all the way to Virginia to see us. So it's like, mm, okay. I think I think there is a point later in the series where someone who's in the CIA gets promoted to the head of the IMF. Ah. So I think I think it, they are very much like okay. the CIA to the FBI, kind yes. of. I would also say Tom Cruise is kind of trying his hardest with the serious acting this time. It's not that he hasn't been trying before, but like I feel he's really going for it here in those moments where, you know, the, the fiancé slash wife in peril stuff and the the dual lives thing he's got going on like when he has to lie to her when he has to come up with reasons why he's going away like he's really going for it and i think being opposite philip seymour hoffman in scenes doesn't hurt <laughs> because you will act or else but yeah i, I feel this is his most earnest attempt at serious acting here. That's the thing is, because it kind of, like, the previous movies have kind of coasted on Tom Cruise just being a charismatic person. Yes. And kind of relied on that, and whilst he has a physicality to how he does stuff, he definitely isn't, he hasn't done kind of big acting work since the kind of 80s or early 90s, in terms of, like, I mean, like, he's great in Minority Report. He is great in War of the Worlds. Obviously, people have issues with that movie, but I don't think they fall on his performance. Yeah. But, like, he's a good actor who, but, but more often not, he kind of relies 
relies on just being naturally charismatic and this movie does ask for him to show vulnerability at points even yeah. if he is still kind of I mean the movie doesn't really have him out of control but I think it's very noticeable that the final set piece of this movie involves him lying dead on the floor he hangs a man upside down out of a plane Benjamin <laughs> what he do you mean he's out of he's not out of control and I mean I mean it's fine. And you can retract it. It's I, fine. No, I'm, I'm just. I, I, he he is not out of control of kind of the character. If that okay. makes. I don't, I don't. I'm trying to. The actor is not out of control. Yeah. Okay. Our mission this time. So you kind of spelled a lot of it out. So despite stepping back from active field work in favor of training new IMF agents, Ethan is coaxed back in to in order to rescue one of his trainees. Finds himself caught up in her mission to take down Owen Davian who is an arms dealer and he's after something called rabbit's foot that we will never find out what it truly is my theory is it's it's chimera from mission impossible 2 but that's just headcanon so let's get into it owen motherfucking davian is here he is interrogating ethan in uh, medias res <laughs> yes very much so he wants to know where rabbit's foot is he threatens to shoot a currently unknown woman at the count of 10 and he apparently follows through because one of the greatest pre-credit scenes in the history of movies for my money like count it like i'm gonna count to 10 and i'm gonna kill her and he fucking reaches 10 and we don't see the gun we see him we hear the gunshot and we go to that fuse and that opening title sequence which is back and it's incredible like opening with the ending is a great great choice not something you would have seen coming based on how the first two they're not trying anything structurally different like i guess this is jj abrams like that that feels a very tv thing to do and, yeah and i mean it, lost it, it, is known for the flashbacks and yeah stuff, it is so. it is i mean and it's something i feel like has become kind of very commonplace and very not looked down upon but kind of like quite an easy crutch to go like just starting your story in media's rest to get your uh, to get your um, audience kind of involved it's what breaking bad does at the top of his pilot it's it is a narrative crutch that's been leaned on but when done effectively such as when you have philip seymour hoffman there to deliver not even exposition but just to kind of act in general just um, be the possibly greatest actor of all time as we yeah. used <laughs> yeah and then and then you just kick off the movie and you and you yeah. kind of left the point where it's like well what the fuck was that exactly <laughs> like, yeah it's super fucking intriguing it's a hell of an opening like i have watched this scene on youtube multiple times over the years like without wanting to watch the entire movie i've been like you know what i want to watch philip seymour hoffman be a villain again and because he's fucking great he always is and just controlling the emotional temperature of the room throughout this and just being this very unique kind of villain that is just calm and it's like he comes across as like i am the only adult in this room and like look i'm not fucking around i will fucking shoot her and he shoots her in the leg before he reaches 10 and it's like he goes from calm and he's like rabbit's foot's not in paris where is it to shouting and be like oh, you think i'm fucking around like do you think oh i guess he says do you think i'm playing around and tom cruise just you know we've seen ethan just be so cool calm and collected at all times like being smarmy and very occasionally getting a little bit emotional but just to see him frantically rocking in the chair and being like i swear to god i'm gonna kill you tears streaming down his face and everything like it's so intense it's so goddamn good we miss you philip seymour hoffman like yeah, yeah. On i repeat. mean I, I don't want every movie to do this but like every once in a while a movie does it effectively yeah. and I, I do really think this is very effective i love that kind of like even in points like because obviously pretty soon we're going to get the inverse of this scene with with ethan hunt in control yeah. and odavian kind of very not in control but even then he's still so relaxed and he's unflappable I love yeah, the, that about him. He cannot be intimidated. He's yeah, just like, thing, look, I do this for a fucking living, son. Let's go. Yeah, the only thing he asks is, what's your name? Yeah. <laughs> what's your What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? It's all he wants to know. Is because, like, I'm going to get out of this. And yeah. if I know your name, I can get everything about you. Yeah, and he fucking gets it. And it's like, oh, Ethan, he fucking won that one as well. So we flash back post-credits. They don't really specify how much time, but, I mean, I guess if you put it together and if it's all playing out in real time... Like, like two days before. Ethan and Julia, who is this woman, uh, Michelle Monhan, are hosting an engagement party with Ethan, as you said, claiming he works for the Department of Transportation, but he does receive a secret message from IMF who asks him to go help this missing agent who was investigating Davian. Domesticated Ethan holding back how crazy he is is a whole ass <laughs> thing, and I really, really like it. Like, I, I've, I've been saying to you in the lead-up to re-watching this, all I remember is Philip Seymour Hoffman and 
Ethan trying to pretend he's a normal person. And it, it came out as I was watching it that I also remembered the Vatican scene. I just thought it was the fourth movie. So I guess I remember the whole first hour. Talking about traffic as a living organism while Greg fucking Grunberg showing up because he's in Lost. No, it's for... because he's best mates with J.J. Abrams. Is that why he's in both shows? <laughs> he's in Lost and why he's in this rather than he's in this because he's in Lost. Yeah, like okay. he's in, he's he's best friends with Greg, Greg Grunberg and J.J. Abrams are childhood friends. He's, oh. um, he's a series regular in Felicity and in Alias. He's in Lost. He's, he's in, in Star Wars. He's in Star Wars. He's in Star Trek. He plays Chris Pine's dad in Star Trek. No, he doesn't. It's Chris Hemsworth. He's his adopted dad. Uh-huh. On the on the phone when he gets told off, he's his adopted right. dad. But he's like literally, he's he's they, they are best mates. This why it, it's just one of those okay. things. But yeah, um, I just I, love I, Ethan I, trying to pass for normal. <laughs> yeah, I love I love the beat where he's talking about traffic as an organism, and Greg Grunberg does the face where he's just kind of like, oh, kill me, so boring. And then both women are just like, I'd, I'd marry him. Marry him. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. is this is this request from Tom? Cruise, or is this? <laughs> and then he fucking spies on his wife while yes. she's chatting to her friends about kind of like all these stories, whilst watching them or lip reading them whilst he watches them. Yeah. To the point where she then can't remember something, so he shouts out from across a crowded party in the middle yeah. of making drinks the answer to the question. And she's like, right. And then all of her friends are like, um, what the fuck? It's just great. And you're just waiting for him to fuck up. Oh, is this him? I hope so. Uh, and they, <laughs> they get through all of this and, and, you know, they get their toast and everything. Does Ethan legit not have his parents anymore? Because in, in Mission Impossible 1, there was mention of a mother and an uncle. No mention of a father. And it's like, you know, have his parents died between one and, and this one? I don't know. But Who knows? Or is it like, <laughs> he's a spy, his whole backstory is falsified. I don't know. Uh, we get the Aaron Paul sighting trippy <laughs> and then yeah so he gets his phone call and he he throw i like him throwing the ice out the back and then being like oh we're out of ice it's like i like he had to make it real you know like she obviously wasn't gonna go check like you could just said we're out of ice but he, he has to make it real and he goes and meets billy crudup in a convenience store and i think they have a nice little chemistry here like talking about the party and like you should have come you should have invited me you know i wanted to or, or whatever and, and calling this mission his gift because he's sort of like nagging at him to come back and everything. He's like, oh no, family comes first, but if you could just come back and be an agent again, please. That would be great. The disposable camera as the delivery mechanism for the, like, this is how you're receiving your mission this time. I like that this is becoming a trope. He will get his missions on innocuous objects. And I, maybe that's something from the TV show. I, I don't know. But it's profoundly less dumb than the sunglasses. And it's less dated than the in-flight movie cassette from the first one. I thought this is the first, like really like fun one of those because uh, he like he like walks past it and taps it or i don't know if he put it there or, or whatever but yeah uh, i i like him and, and billy crudup for sure and we, you know we talked about billy crudup in uh, <laughs> almost famous and how he kind of it seemed like the world was his for the taking and he kind of just vanishes into not obscurity but this isn't the kind of role you maybe saw him taking back when he was like in the running with people like brad pitt for leading roles in movies yeah I mean, he's, he's what? He's fourth build in this movie, which you really wouldn't expect. expect. Generous, I think. I think he is credited above, like, Monaghan, Reese Myers, and Kerry Russell and Maggie Q. <laughs> which, I mean, I, I mean, I, I assume Lawrence Fishburne is a, Fishburne is a winter Fishburne gets the doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's Cruz, Hoffman, Rames, and then, and then yeah, Crudup, who is yeah. the, spoilers, the secondary villain of the movie. Yeah, but until then... Doing some nice work, I think. Yeah, in kind of in kind of the role that Anthony Hopkins kind of took, but I don't, I don't know. know. You get the idea; he's lower than that. Like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is the first movie that's kind of going to give a structure to what IMF is. Mm. In the previous two movies, like Mission Impossible One is all in the field, apart from like when they go into Langley. Mission Impossible Two also all in the field, but there is like some sightings of the inner workings because you have Hopkins giving the mission, yes. and there are other people there on computers. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one's just like, oh yeah. We got the set from Alias, and yeah, we decided. It, it, it's the CIA. There's a whole building. There's tech support. There's directors. There's handlers. Like 
Because, I mean, they've made mention, you know, various IMF agents and, and implying we're selecting you someone from the lo- the vast sort of rotary of people. And this this is the first time it's like, okay, I believe it, that there are, like, dozens of agents out there. Um, so, yeah, as mentioned, he takes the mission. He succeeds in rescuing uh, Lindsay Farris, who is the first agent that he endorsed, I believe, uh, after this, like, prolonged shootout. And she attempts to warn Ethan about something privately, but they realise too late she has, like, a little explosive they say explosive and you're expecting like boom boom but it's a weird little effect it's cool it's like a weird like a a strange noise and then just one of her eyes just goes and she's just dead instantly the the eye effect is, is fucked up before he goes on the mission you know like you we see him having the nightmare him tearing up as he lies to her about where he's going and then when he actually shows up for the mission he is all grins and i don't think they fully leaned into it they leaned like 70 percent of the way in to it that like he is trying to be a normal person and and like have this normal life but he lives for this shit almost that story of the addict like he's clean but like he's he's been forced to take another hit or something and he, he loves it and like luther comes across as a bit of an asshole like grilling him about like what do you even like about this girl and stuff and like they lay it on so heavy that like you can't have a normal life uh, we go full tactical shooter as he, like, raids the place and and him and, and Maggie Q have got the, like, not-quite-night-vision goggles as they're just moving and firing and moving and firing. Which, you know, as I said, is a far cry from what we've had before. We do still get that sort of John Woo style, he's got one bullet left, slow-motion fire. I do like that bit. Like it's, he's yeah, wet, good. <laughs> Like, they're, they're running through the building and then she's just like, I'm out of, I'm out of bullets, how many yeah. bullets do you have? He looks, sees only one guy left and goes enough and it's and one then, yeah <laughs> it's, it's one the guy goes in the building now, it's so now. supremely dumb but it's just it's just it's, yeah. I think what I really like about this movie is just how confident it is mm. I don't think it does anything spectacular like obviously all of J.J. Abrams kind of like worst impulses are in this movie with the mystery box and lens the lens flare. flare and all the rest of it but I do think for a directorial debut yeah. in a two movie franchise that's based on a TV show it is really actually quite confident in terms of like the stuff that it's bringing to the table I think there are some interesting narrative decisions coming on later but like you watch (laughs) this scene where he's literally kind of pulling in his first kind of ingenue that he found in Kerry Russell and then just letting her go Mm. like oh you get me an action star now because obviously super cool when they're like back to back clearing the room all of that she's great yeah I mean like because she was I think the idea for Alias came from like a subplot in an episode of Felicity and obviously he finds Jennifer Garner because that is J.J. Abrams skill is finding these actresses who are going to have like quite big careers and are all really good I mean because Carrie Russell Jennifer Garner and eventually eventually (laughs) yeah are all are all really good finds and and yeah getting to get him getting to come back to this world with her is just really great I mean obviously like she she comes back in Star Wars as well she's fine in Star Wars that's that's a let's toss you a cameo (laughs) yeah this just works and I really dig it it's just Um, it's so different from the first it is really fascinating that like there are three wildly different tones between these first three movies but it doesn't feel overly jarring it's just like oh cool this is what we're doing now and like if it were worse I could see that as a criticism of like like there is no cohesion who is this character but it works I guess because it's just been this is just Tom Cruise doing Tom Cruise things so if you just get some confident direction behind it he'll make it work well I think because he, he picks J.J. Abrams he knows what J.J. Abrams can do he has like, Tom Cruise has creative control in a lot of ways. Of I mean, he picked, he picked John Woo. He picked Brian De Palma. Like, he picked them all. And I just think this this is the one that kind of clicks creatively. I think this is, up to this point, the most acclaimed of the movies. I know it's my favourite of the three we've done so far. It's it's probably my favourite movie we've covered so far for the podcast. <laughs> I know I know you love Supremacy, but it is the best Mission Impossible. Nah. You're not going to say it's better than one? I really wish the second half were good. It is my hot okay. take I've been okay. sitting on all day. I think it's super fucking good right up until the twist, and then I think the back half is dull. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think it's a part of the thing where J.J. Abrams can't do endings, and not even the ending, just from no, sure, but like yeah. he struggles to kind of like bring all the ideas that he kind of lays out you know, yeah, on line together. That's why I think he's a good producer because that's like a job of ideas. It's like it's up to you, the writer, to figure out how to thread the needle on all this stuff. But here's all my like 
crazy stuff I've come up with. Have fun, Damon Lindelof. I, I wish Kerry Russell were, were around longer. Like, you've got me intrigued here by, like, this is the first agent he avowed. Luther, like, asks his questions about, was there something going on with you? We get the, like, montage of him training her. She has this super badass, all-too-brief scene of, of, of doing the shooty-shooty bang-bang stuff. But she's out of here. We and then, get uh, this weird, like, helicopters flying through wind turbines beat that I don't know where that came from, but it's there. It's a choice. I mean, again, you text me, because I said on the Mission of Awesome 2 episode, the breakdown of the team is... <laughs> Ethan Hunt, Luther who can do a hat, and then guy who can fly helicopters. And guy who woman. is not American who can fly helicopters. <laughs> and and woman, who and in this case is Maggie skills Q. Optional. Yes. Yeah. The exact team makeup has been adhered to. And Maggie Q has not slept with the villain that we know of, but we get somewhat close in an upcoming scene. Yeah. And we do also get our first appearance of Eddie Marsan briefly in this scene. Wasted, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean like it, this is a completely nothing role for him in this movie. I went to the Mission Impossible wiki just to go like did I miss a scene where he died is there a cutscene or something it's just like why no, is there a no, Mission Impossible wiki I know there's a wiki for everything but like what is hard to grasp about Mission Impossible is there like an extensive page on IMF I know it's, will it tell you what to, the rabbit's foot is no it's mostly to keep track of like all the people who come in and out of these movies because okay. an awful lot of these characters are only in one movie despite the fact surviving to the very end well there's a lot of turmoil between movies a lot of the time uh, yes. it will settle down but yeah. So Ethan is chewed out by a IMF brass, led by Lawrence Fishburne. So he puts together this elaborate mission to go get Davian, uh, which is, you know, who Lindsay got captured trying to get to. And they plan, they kidnap him from a charity event at the Vatican, where he's trying to get the rabbit's foot, which we heard about in that first scene. Fishburne has this dumbass line about chocolate shouldn't make you fat, and yeah, whatever. <laughs> and it's like, okay. But despite that line being bad, he is great here as a very domineering boss who is like, you know, you hate him because he's like telling off Tom Cruise who is our lovely good boy who couldn't do no wrong. But I don't know how right he is but like he goes on to like point out all these issues and like Davian knows that we can't find him and he like gets off on you know it, it emboldens him and he's like correcting Musgrave as he like mentions the wrong author of the wrong invisible man I, th I just think he's like really flexing here and like yeah I mean like, Fishburne this, this goes is... through this period of like not really trying after this so like you gotta savor these good roles when you can with him I feel <laughs> yeah I mean it's quite funny because a couple of years after this he goes on to do Hannibal where he's playing a kind of a similar role and he's also really good in that but that okay. gives him a little bit more field work but no he's just he's having fun I like pretty much all the Mission Impossible movies have a big name playing the head of the IMF it's never a flashy role but it's normally quite a fun role and um, they're normally set up to be somewhat villainous and they're yeah, not they're, they're, they're antagonistic and but the thing the thing I like and the thing you said is nothing he says is incorrect because as yeah. far as he's aware Ethan Hunt recommends him an agent the agent got kidnapped on her first mission and then had a bomb installed inside her he's like what the fuck is this yeah. this is someone who's supposed to be fully trained and you've kind of like given her to me and she fucks up on her first mission and now we have nothing and they're quite right that they all could have died because as I said like they call it an explosive device so you're expecting an explosion and it only kills her but like it could have been a full on bomb and they could yeah. have all died I like, do he, think he, you he let it get on without a scan is a bit of an excuse extreme comment. But. No, but the thing is you don't know how, how much they do, because obviously yeah. the implication is, we've seen the last movie, people wear different faces quite often in this, this franchise. very true, and we've got a new version coming. Simon Pegg pops up in a role where he replaced Ricky fucking Gervais. I mean, oh, thank fuck. I know. Fun fact, after the, after Shaun of the Dead, he was interviewed about his like aspirations in Hollywood, and he said, it's not like I'm going to be in Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> Surprise, motherfucker, here you are, doing a weird convoluted story about anti-god. Yeah. He the, the, the really most, gets his claws into Abrams and this franchise, though. <laughs> yeah, he really does. I mean, he's in all of Abrams' movies after this, apart from Super 8. He has the weird, like, the most mystery box, like, monologue in this movie, where it's literally just like, hey, this thing, we don't know what it is. What if it's this thing? That you don't know what it is. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's a weird one where like he becomes the actual tech guy when they already had a tech guy, but I guess Luther is getting more physical in this one. Yeah, I mean I mean Luther is barely in the next one, and then he kind of makes his return for five and six, but like obviously Benji uh, graduates to kind of like field agent in the next movie in yeah. one of my favourite set pieces. In yeah, the I remember him being good. I mean that's the thing, because he's in all of them. I mean at this point, like they've kind of drilled down uh, this is the 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 third of the kind of main characters of the franchise. I 
think it's fair to say it is Cruz, Ving Rhames, and and Simon Pegg at this point. Yeah, somewhat replacing Ving Rhames, but yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's the thing. It's obvious. I, I wonder if the, his role in the next one is because Ving Rhames was aging out, didn't want to come back, or didn't want to come back full time. So they wanted someone a bit younger, a bit hipper. But they find room for both of them going forward in the franchise, which is which is good. I think that's the thing. Is like we're starting to watch this franchise evolve and figure out what's working. And I think that's what makes it most impressive is that it's willing to dump the stuff that isn't kind of clicking in some ways the continuity isn't sacred or or the core part is ethan hunt being crazy and and the rest is up for grabs and even that wasn't the case early on so yeah i mean exactly like you get get the point where they they, i mean later on the franchise they don't get jeremy Renner because he has to film avengers and and fallout 4 doesn't miss a beat and it's just one of those things where like there's there's a lot of interchangeable parts but they understand especially from this point onwards what makes the franchise kind of click so ethan like really struggles to come up with a reason why he has to go away for more than just one night and you know to her credit she is you know he says trust me and she's like of course i trust you and her her doubt doesn't fall in like are you going off to sleep with ladies it's more like are we real so he marries her there and then in the hospital and uh, we get more of the rare tom cruise having sex in a movie thing here i guess they found another one he has chemistry with katie holmes was actually up for this role interestingly that would have hurt the box office more i think i probably <laughs> yeah he jumps up and down on the sofa and then the lady it's about is in the movie too again it's a nice effort to attach some emotional weight to ethan that kind of hasn't really been there before like you know he's obviously concerned about naya but like they fucking sent naya in there and did her dirty and he's like the only person who doesn't hate her in that movie so it's hard to really attach uh but you know it's nice to give him that and like you know he gets he is now a married man and we can start calling her his wife instead of his fiance. So Let's talk about the Vatican. They break into the Vatican. And firstly, is the whole fake argument, everyone shouting at each other, doing the hand gestures, is that a tiny bit racist? Or not really racist, but, you know, xenophobic. <laughs> no, I, just, I, just... I think it is. No, everyone in Italy is a bad driver. That's just okay. how it works. He scales the wall. Does he, like, take a essentially a really high-def Polaroid of yeah, the perspective the of the high... camera yep. and then puts it over the front of the camera? Yep, so they don't see him. And then, then he does his clear riff on Mission Impossible 1, the cable descent thing. This time with precise calculation. Uh, a fun little device there. And then he disguises himself as a priest. <laughs> yep. He gets his way down into the lower... Like, stop trying to rationalise this. Like, every okay. single movement they do is, like, so overcomplicated for what they're trying to do. Because uh... Tom Cruise scales the walls and dresses like a priest. Yes. Jonathan Reese Myers disguises himself as a tourist to get into the same part of the building. Yes. Ving Rhames has to come in via diving to, through, a, through, through a the puddle. catacombs. Through yeah. the catacombs. And then Meg you drives a nice car in to go to the party and it's like all four of you got into this building without much hassle but you all came through different entrances yeah. in like the most overcomplicated way possible yeah. and I love it it's so dumb and it's just like w- watching it this time I was just like why is anyone doing the things that they're doing yeah. but also it's like this is this is the kind of the big scale heist in this and it does lead to Philip Seymour Hoffman oh thank god he's back Maggie Q like taking the pictures of him with the compact as she's touching up her makeup and then they like 3D print the rubber mask there and then and just happen to have hairpiece and eyebrows that perfectly match his and yeah it's utterly amazing that they got Philip Seymour Hoffman to pretend to be Tom Cruise for a bit and do a little bit of running around and, and, and actiony stuff and yeah getting him to recite this this poem that uses every sound in the English language allegedly so that they can like get a voice match on him and we've got two Philip Seymour Hoffmans and we've got a Philip Seymour Hoffman behind a door while like they're waiting for the voice to sync up and then it comes out weird anyway but whatever it's good stuff and like you know Maggie bumping into him so he like drops uh, he's spilling the wine on him he's like yeah yeah I, I always spill wine on my custom made Italian shirt or whatever it's like okay Dude. Also, do you get custom-made shirts? I know you get custom-made suits, but I thought the shirt part was uh, less bespoke. It's really good fun, and 
then you get Philip Seymour Hoffman getting to flirt outrageously with Maggie Q of like, you know, what will we be doing in your hotel room while I've my shirt is off and stuff like that. It's just good fun. I mean, this is the first movie he did after he won the Oscar. Yeah. We love him. He's so good. I think yeah. this this is the scene I always think of when I'm back on this movie is is this kind of extended scene of them recruiting him. It, it's what I love about the Mission Impossible franchise is I feel is when they have a plan and the plan goes ever so slightly wrong and then the entire thing is kind of cascading trying to figure out a way to make it work and this is like one of my favorite ones i think i think the rest of the movie makes a mistake in that it kind of becomes more action-based whereas what you want is these just charismatic actors dealing with things going wrong and and it's like it's why the burj khalifa set piece from the next movie is so well regarded <laughs> yes um but yeah no but this is very much kind of like i love that bit thing where like where maggie hughes like oh there's a guy coming and he has to kind of like cough obsessively over the over the sink mm. because the voice isn't matched up and then yeah. he definitely could have gotten rid of him with just non-verbal cues like he's like gesturing really hard at him just go, go away get, get well, he out. could have just been like a like he could like he goes are you okay and just looks at him and then looks back it's like you could have just nodded and like done a shoe type motion with your hand like there was he made it look so suspicious anyway uh and then, it, and then we go, we go back to overcomplicated like heist moves because they have to pop the car on a specific thing yes and then go into the sewer blow up the car so he looks dead and then there's that fun little moment where like the camera's on hoffman it moves over to maggie q or whoever and then it moves back and it's tom cruise taking off his mask and everything. it's like that's a that's a fun I would like to see the behind the scenes of them just quickly switching places on that one it's fun and then we get the inverted interrogation metaphorically and literally Ethan interrogates Davian who is utterly unintimidated and it is revealed that he works for Lawrence Fishburne's character Brassel well for now it's revealed that there's a call from Brassel's office is what we find out yes because Lindsay had a letter sent to Ethan, I guess, in the event of her death, or maybe just anyway. And it contains this micro dot that, like, they just put a pin in it because they have to decode it. And then they conveniently decode it right at this moment. And it appears that Brassel is the puppet master and he ostensibly has Ethan's convoy attacked. They get Davian back, who, true to his word, kidnaps Julia and demands, you know, go get my briefcase or go get the rabbit for in 48 hours or she dies so this interrogation scene when they are you know he is trying to do his threatening i i I will kill you stuff and he's just like do you have a wife a girlfriend like i'm going to find her i'm gonna hurt her and then just keeps asking his name as you said and all of that like it's really fun to see them switch roles compared to the opening and to see that, like, it just is not going well for Ethan in either version. He is so used to, like, I can get out of any situation, I can bluff, I can act, I can intimidate. And Davian just doesn't give a shit, and he's yeah. just better than him. <laughs> yeah, and I love that he kind of, like, he keeps on trying to find the button that's gonna, gonna push him over the edge. He tries to say, oh, we'll find your, your if you have a wife or a girlfriend or whatever. How very heteronormative of him. Well, um, yes. <laughs> but that isn't working, so he goes to, like, oh, I did what I did to that little blonde agent of yours tries a different tactic which obviously causes him to go off the deep end to start to like cut him out from underneath it and then you have Luther shouting Ethan's name at him to get him to stop and And then he's got everything he wants (laughs) which again all he needs is the name even though we know he has an IMF agent in his pay at this point it wouldn't be that hard to figure out (laughs) which one of the four agents they sent well yes but we are so used to seeing these kinds of scenes and like the villain caves like he comes up with something so extreme that the villain's like okay 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 and it's really refreshing to see a villain who's just unflappable it's like okay hang me outside the bottom of a fucking plane and like you know he looks like ah but he he still doesn't cave and yeah i mean like the first thing he does after he's been pulled out from uh, was falling out of the plane is kind of going like all right ethan he says his name to him and that's how the scene ends yeah Uh, i still have this power and in my opinion that is the last good scene in the movie and everything after this is either boring i i think the ending uh there's some poignant stuff at the very end so we'll, we'll keep going but like, that's my that's why i wouldn't go as far as to say like this is the best movie we've done so far and i also don't know if it's better than mission impossible one overall like if it, it sustained this momentum of the first hour throughout like whoa great fucking movie but i just think it's kind of like mission impossible one but the pieces have been 
jumbled around a bit where instead of here's a good scene here's something boring here's a good scene here's something boring it's like here are all of the good scenes and now the rest is going to be all boring and i don't know if it's more boring than the bad stuff in mission impossible one but like it i really felt that like loss of momentum i do think that this kind of structure of the movie now is less interesting um i will say i think a better director could have gotten a lot more use out of the chesapeake bay bridge tunnel yeah this next scene like, is on. it's in daylight which again refreshing and we just, we have drones and helicopter gunfire and jumping over a chasm and tom cruise looks old for the first time in that moment and it's such it's such a kind of unique location in that yeah like like it's this huge expanse of water uh, but it's kind of like completely open like you don't see either stretch of land on either side i don't know it just, it just feels yeah. really interesting it feels like it of... should be more interesting than it is is that like i'm watching it all i'm like objectively this should all be like wild and cool but it's just somehow not despite yeah that. they're attacked by a drone that kind of blows up yeah. part of the convoy a bunch of guys come out for a helicopter and start spraying cold foam. <laughs> yeah, to like melt or yeah, something to like corrode the side to get Davian out. And when he picks up that phone at the, you know, we get him frantically trying to get to the hospital. And then like when he calls her and Davian answers and he's like, don't threaten me, just don't. <laughs> it's like, yep. fuck yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we get more Tom Cruise just always running as the IMF show up to arrest him and he yeah, briefly ultimate, makes a go for it. The ultimate Tom Cruise running movie, this one. Uh, kind of. I think Minority Report, he's running a lot as well. Yeah, but this one has, like, the, the final set piece of this movie is, like, run from oh, this yeah. location to this location. I guess that is the grand climax. Just run a mile. So Brassel has Ethan brought in and Musgrave helps him escape and is like, yo, rabbit's foot's in Shanghai. And he and his team put together another mission to go get the rabbit's foot. So the lip reading scene paying off is really, that's a nice touch that like, you know, it was a comedy moment at the beginning at the party, but then, you know, Musgrave is trying to like verbally not give away that like, I'm still working with you, but he is, he's like, Ethan, at least look at me. And then as soon as he does, he's like mouthing stuff for Emily lip reader. And it's like, on some level, them subtitling it, makes it less elegant but then also we obviously can't lip read and it would feel a bit weird if they tried to just convey it fully i don't know i, just, I mean i watch movies with subtitles so it i was do just, as well it, it was just more subtitles for me no so no just... i agree but we get the winter soldier elevator scene and not done quite as well but you know basically there as ethan like is handed this something to help him like cut his way free and then he beats up the three dudes in the elevator and he heads to shanghai there's a brief scene of him in skies and being check and it's like it doesn't really go anywhere this is the most interesting part to me because i feel like the vatican scene is already the kind of big heist of the movie yeah but then we get to this point where he has to make it from one building to another yeah. they can't drop him onto it and all these other different things and so yeah. this is for all intents and purposes the sequel to the heist at langley and the scene in the second movie where he has to go destroy chimera they should have um, flipped them this one is just not as interesting as vatican I yeah but i think i think it, it works well enough in that, that scene where he's like drawing the buildings and the camera pans around to see his perspective where he and, becomes will hunting for a minute yeah and then him jumping onto the building it's all filmed pretty well but then it's like it, the movie kind of goes like oh, we ran out of budget so we can't do the actual tense bit can't of the show you inside the building yeah it just feels emotionally inappropriate now almost and like obviously it's like he was told go get rabbit's foot in 48 hours and they're running out of time rapidly but it just i don't know it just well, feels yeah. impotent compared to what we've already seen like for them to be like this is a thief's nightmare after he just broke into the fucking vatican and you made a big song and dance about how it's a fortress and it is and like you could never break into the vatican i don't know to go from that to this and like admittedly like in a in a vacuum it's cool that he is sitting there doing like as i said like he just reveals that he is an expert in maths and and physics and stuff and he's jotting his calculations and he fulcrums from one building to the other and slides down and fucking whacks the dudes on the way down it's all really cool it's just i don't know it feels uh, yeah i think i think it's a combination of the kind of two things in that the movie's already done a better set piece at this point yeah. it kind of undercuts itself by not showing you what goes in, on inside the building with potentially more tension stuff but also like the sense of time just kind of completely vanishes yeah. where you're given 48 hours but most of that is has to be cut away because he has to get to shanghai yeah because well yeah it, <laughs> because it's like a 16 hour flight or whatever yeah exactly it's, it's a long flight and he's got to wait through customs and all this yeah. kind of different bullshit 
watch it. And then they've yeah. got two hours and they start planning it. And then when they actually go to start executing it, they've got like 20 minutes because they've got to procure all the stuff and logistically set it up. And it's just like, yeah, the sense of time is all over the place. It feels like this was where they ran out of money. I guess, yeah. Like, like if this was what, like maybe this was with a big budget, if they were going to give them more money, it would have been more interesting. Corridor shootout, you know, yeah, all of that stuff. Or, or maybe like a lot of the budget for this movie is kind of based around development and some of it was kind of thrown at, like you have to count the money that was thrown at um, the prior version of it that had to be delayed yeah. or they did have a year to film and, well they, they started filming a year before it came out yeah. as well, but I mean so. plastic is I feel like I feel like from the next movie they start kind of going in with what the set pieces are going to be and then they build the movie around well, that that's what because... they did in the first two and I guess this is the first time they didn't do that and I guess it seems like a bad way to do a movie but I guess it's actually the proof is that those scenes have been great <laughs> in previous ones. The Vatican yeah. one is obviously great. Yeah, I mean that's things. I, I still think the scene is all good, but I do think this kind of this stretch is kind of hampered by it feels like it's rushing to a conclusion. I think the conclusion yeah. pays off wonderfully, and obviously we disagree there, but like I do think because of what he gets he goes to meet Davian and then yeah so he gets Rabbit's foot which is just a canister of something so you know clearly it's Chimera and he goes to the rendezvous and it's like drink this no questions and then he wakes up in the opening scene of the movie in that interrogation only to reveal that it's Musgrave not Brassel who is working with Davian and that it's not Julia in front of him it is Davian's translator from the Vatican who they end of Mission Impossible 2 <laughs> yeah I mean she, she did not she did not not do anything as bad as deserving to be shot in the head no <laughs> it's cool that we come back to this that it all neatly it's like ah it's like okay cool that stimulates my brain but i don't know that you then learn the execution of it's musgrave not Russell isn't handled well allegedly they did it that credit was reading off cue cards because they changed it up right up until they filmed it and i think his performance up until here is good and then i just don't think this quite works because i don't know it just doesn't feel right to me and it feels very tv episode twisty and i don't mean that in a compliment no yeah I mean, this, this, this is this is where jj james gets his like his his basing and grounding and stuff like that and billy Crudup isn't great and i mean it, but i think it is an issue in that like this movie is trying to make you feel like this guy has a history and they haven't really solved that. And like I mean, he has to do his shaky villain monologue about we're going to let them have rabbit's foot so we're allowed to preemptively strike them and do what this country does best, coming in and imposing order yeah. in a I, but I appreciate, nation. I appreciate the movie kind of offs him or not offs him, but kind of gets rid of him fairly quickly because, yeah. uh, and then we're just like, right, run, Simon Pegg <laughs> comes back directs him via via the phone to kind yeah. of where he needs to go and then we like, get... Davian got there real fast because like we see him exit the room so that Crudup can come in and do the plot reveal and then like by the time Cruz is like dispatched Crudup by the way those are when Marson like injects him with the the thing the, the the explosive charge and when he bites Billy Crudup's hand in both instances that is Tom Cruise's hand they've painted to look like the other actors because he said that the injection thing legitimately hurt so he wanted to control it so he knew how much pain he could give himself or whatever and then he also wanted to bite his own hand rather than bite another human that's insane what i just said but it's true <laughs> but yeah davian is then just magically in this other location just chilling and i i guess he drove there or something but like i don't know it just seemed like he got there real quick and then ethan is like frantically sprinting to get to him and everything yeah. i think he is good i mean because obviously this is the payoff this is him going like i told you i was going to be there she was going to say your name yeah all of that is good but just like while tom cruise is just running and asking asian people to move it's dull and like you've got Simon Pegg doing his best to be funny over the phone and stuff and it kind of works but just I don't know I'm just so hit by how much momentum this movie lost from the moment of the bridge scene that like yeah it's cool that like he shows up and Davian kind of calmly kicks his ass like counter like yeah I mean he is having like some kind of like yeah. seizure or whatever during the yes, entire fight it, like 
Ethan is winning, and then he, like, activates the device, so he's got, like, a convenient amount of time to do things. And, like, when he's scrambling on the floor and he, like, tries to do a takedown, and then Damien just sort of steps around it and fucking slugs him. Like, that's all good stuff. And saying, like, ah, you know what, I'm gonna kill her in front of you instead. Uh, I I just think it's a smart move, because it goes, like, because obviously I don't think anyone would say that Philip Seymour Hoffman could beat up Tom Cruise, but this impediment, which is something they've set up earlier on in the movie, and has a sort solution which they set up earlier on the movie which yeah. leads to a really fun tense moment in a second i just think it's kind of clean elegant writing i just think yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the issues with it are kind of it's a weird choice for this movie where the skanks get higher and higher and higher for it to come down to this at this point and even then, though i love everything that's going on and then kind ethan of, kind of wins by just going wild man on him he's just like Rah! and just like and then, he, him. and then he gets him hit by a car yeah okay bye davian you were the best villain this franchise is ever gonna see i would I mean, I haven't seen Fallout, but I would imagine it's hard to top Philip Seymour Hoffman in that opening scene. We will discuss Fallout. Wonderful. Also, Rogue Nation. Maybe that's got a good villain. I don't know about that one either. Oh, anyway, Sean Harris. Sean Harris. We saw earlier when Kerry Russell had her charge activated. Ethan was like, have we got a defibrillator? I will shock her. It will short circuit the charge or whatever, and then I'll shock her back to life. And she dies before he can do it because it has to charge. So we know what he's going for, and he has to set up a makeshift one. He has to basically touch the mains almost. <laughs> set up a makeshift one. He cuts, he finds like, a, like an a cable. Yeah. And he wants his doctor wife to revive him, which, you know, if you want anyone to do this. However, this is a fucking giant circuit breaker style thing, so. But he makes a real point of teaching her how to use his gun because he's going to be unconscious and he can't guarantee there's no one else in the area. And he's quite right because she has to kill a random unnamed henchman and she kills Musgrave, which is interesting to give her that. You know, you'd think Ethan would close the loop on it, that, like, his friend betrayed him and then he kills him. Um, and I like him, like, relating... It's like changing the batteries and the flashlight in the kitchen. Like, that's a nice little piece of, of grounding and, and relationship work there. I think they go a bit far. I don't... Like, again, I don't want to tackle this from the perspective of, like, no woman could use a sword, like that dude with the Witcher. I'm not saying she can't shoot people. It's just... I don't know. I feel they go a little bit too far in, like, her, her competency with this and I don't I don't want it to be incompetent it's just I don't know I, I don't quite know how to phrase it but I love it because like she's not good I get but I she, mean she does she's like able... do the reflection and the like diving shoot she throws herself to her back and fires repeatedly and like I mean I, I, I understand that it's fundamentally pop feminism in that way like because obviously like we are ascribing like the, the, the white male director who <laughs> has a talent for kind of hiring pretty young women who are good at acting yes. but I just uh, I really like, like to... that she kills Musgrove like, I think that's a great call like to subvert that as I said that like you expect Ethan to be the one to do it i just yeah. i wish it was a little bit more clumsy almost no I, yeah I, I i just i just like this kind of flip that the movie does yeah. where this final action set piece is being dominated by the woman who's been the damsel in distress yes. because <laughs> tom cruise is lying down on the floor and i mean again i don't think this movie mm-hmm. is like i think the first hour is the kind of the best part of this movie but i also don't think the second hour hurts it and i understand i'm higher on this franchise than you yeah. are i think i think it, if i liked what happened up until between the 40 minutes preceding it or half hour preceding I think I would like it more because I don't I don't I think the stuff at the very end is good it's just I had like really checked out by that point I like when she revives him and like he bursts back into action and points a gun to like frantically try and protect her because the last thing he was thinking before he died was I must protect her and that's that's a nice little moment there and then all of the stuff like mocking what IMF stands for, like impossible mission force. Like if you, you're kidding me. Like yeah, yeah. And then, and then a fun little party at IMF. Yeah, like Luther saying he would never meet her because of the life they live and everything. And then it is really nice to see her chit chatting with all of them, and like they get that nice little walk away and smile moment and everything. And Fishburne becoming war. Like it's that thing of you see this in movies where like a character is foreshadowed as villainous. And they they act really cruelly. And then when they're not, they suddenly change and they're really nice. But I do think it works because, as we said, everything he said at the beginning was accurate. And also, when he brings Ethan in, ostensibly Ethan 
has done everything that like it seems like he's done and everything. So like, well, he did do an unsanctioned mission in the Vatican. So I, I, I think it works. Is what I'm is what I'm saying long and badly. And for him to now be like, here's some money. Very sorry. Can we tempt you back? Oh, I want to go on my honey, my honeymoon. Fair enough. What's Rabbit's foot? I'll tell you if you stay. And then he's like, no, I'm good. And he's like, fair enough. Yeah, like closing the loop on, on Fishburne's performance. I think yeah, really good. And then we get that fucking terrible Kanye West song in the credits. Yeah, you, we do. You sent me the YouTube link to, and I was like, I have no memory of this. I, I good movie. Know. My favorite so far. Michael Chikino score. I'm a fan. Lots of brass. Yes. Oh yeah, they've they've had the three biggest names in composing, or three of the I mean, biggest I mean, names. Giacchino wasn't that at this point because Giacchino's maybe he'd be nominated for an Oscar at this point, but no, it's very much kind of like I mean, the Mission Impossible Two sound, soundtrack is probably the best thing about the movie. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that is that Hans Zimmer does not like fuck around on that movie. Nope. And uh, Danny Elfman in the first one as well. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm probably being overly harsh to that backstretch, but it's just when the highs are so high up until then, and then the rest is like mediocre to bad. It's like, eh. and then I mean, I, I think this, yeah, this I do is, think the end is good. It's just yeah. yeah I think I this know. is probably like the start of Mission Impossible because yeah. I think one one is kind of figuring out what this franchise is going to be. <laughs> Two well, it wasn't is... even going to be a franchise. It's just here's a movie that not sure. everything was a franchise once yeah. upon a time. Two is what two is, and then this movie kind of starts building the template of what the yeah. franchise is going to be. And I think Ghost Protocol onwards is where they've kind of figured out. What there was they... a version of this podcast where we either skipped one and two or did both of them in one just to get them out of the way because three is where it really becomes Mission Impossible. So yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. So to close out, villain watch. Philip Seymour Hoffman is a god among men. So good, such a memorable villain. Like as I said, that interrogation scene from the beginning. I've just pulled that up on YouTube at times just to be like I just want to watch Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah I, I don't think we can count on one hand the amount of villains we're going to get that are better than what he does in this movie yeah and, and I mean, I don't think he's particularly overly written. I just think he's got a lot of fun interactions with the cast, which I think quite a few of these movies, they'll kind of keep the villains separate for quite a while, whereas this movie has him interacting with the main cast. And obviously they, they separate them for that kind of last chunk, but... Villains are a thing that like a lot of franchises struggle with. There are certain ones that do it really well and are known for it, and I guess they can kind of just do it in their sleep because it's so baked in. I am talking James Bond you know, like and certain other franchises. And then there are ones that really struggle to have a memorable villain and Bourne hasn't really managed it yet Mission Impossible hadn't managed it until now and they you know Marvel gets a lot of stick for like a lot of the villains are underbaked or underdeveloped it, it, it's huge for them I think a huge win for them to have one of the instances of hey you fucking nailed an original villain in the 21st century like, Lawrence Fishburne yeah. up until you realise he's not a villain I think is a good villain <laughs> Billy Crudup is nothing Billy Crudup is nothing there's a world where that twist works and I do like his scene at the beginning but yeah and then Eddie Marson is just completely underutilized as a lackey who yeah, has I mean, no again, real he, explanation of him yeah he escapes whatever the last thing yeah. he did was like shove an explosive up Tom Cruise's nose yeah how did Tom survive so I don't have any fun story I mean the ones for Mission Impossible 2 were fucking wild and always won't be topped but I do know he cracked two ribs turning his torso too quickly <laughs> <laughs> because I mean when he does that little fall onto the glass it looks real painful and obviously they didn't actually swing him from however high and far but it just you know it's a real convincing looking thud and the whole like getting blown into a car and stuff it all looks like it could be painful but like they're obviously using CGI and not practical I, I, effects. I don't think time. they did fake the, the him flying into the car. I mean, I think. I, mean, I, I think would imagine, is... you know, it's probably like a winch, like they yanked him. But yeah, I, don't know. I mean, that, it, it all it's feels he... a little bit more measured and controlled in a way that. Yes, I mean, I think it's it's a combination of JJ Abrams being a first time director, and I, th- I mean, the, the the winch on the car is so noticeable because he flies in such a oh, random yeah. direction like from a, when the explosion goes it's like off. A perfect line. But yeah, I mean, like there's there's a few like good stunts. I mean, obviously he jumps over the thing, which obviously is kind of weird. That moment, he flies yeah. into the car, sliding down the, the the building. Him shooting out the tires on the car when he's like leaning out and holding on to the to the seatbelt. Yeah. All good fun, but nothing. The next movie. Oh yeah, he's gonna start breaking stuff soon. Forget your cracked ribs. So female agency. Now you texted me and said you think this is the best 
for that so far, and right up until that ending, my response was going to be, are you fucking high? Because Julia, for most of the movie, is a damsel, until she's asked to do things at the end. Kerry Russell gets fridged, after teasing some badassery. And Maggie Q's job here is to wear a ridiculous dress, drive a cool car, and have not quite a romance with Jonathan Rhys Myers, who himself is barely a character. And she has to apologise for getting shot at the end. Like, I don't know, like, not really a fan of a lot of that. But then I think they do save it by giving Julia that ending of, like, taking matters into her own hands. She kills the only remaining villain. Like, that stuff I'm good with. For what happens with Marie in Bourne, she's not taking a physical role, but then, like, the story they're presenting, it probably wouldn't be appropriate if she started shooting people. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I, think, I think the key difference between Lindsay and Marie are that, like, for a moment, Lindsay is part of the action and she gets to be really good. Yes, and, but and, for a and whole I... movie, Marie was part of the action and gets to be good. <laughs> Whereas this is the only appearance for Lindsay and she's offed before... Like, I'm like, cool, show me this movie. Show See, me Tom I... Cruise and Lindsay having sexual, she... like, tension. And, like, you asking, did they bang? And is she the one that got away and he settled for the wife? I know, I, I mean, know, I, think, I think but... it's, such a, it's such a low bar for this kind of stuff. But well, I do yes, think... I mean, with all of this, it's a yeah. giant... None of them are good at it, but... <laughs> yeah, but I do, think, I do think that this is, like, Kerry Russell gets to have a scene where she's memorable and good, and while she's fridged, it's not as an emotionally manipulatively fridged. Because it like... Yeah. This is bit. the moment. <laughs> this is the moment that kicks the plot off. Lindsay's death in this movie doesn't free him from the shackles of like the woman who's going to tie him down from the action. Because sure. if she survives, she comes with him. Whereas in Bourne, this is the person who's retired with, and it's the reason why he goes back into action is because she dies. And it feels so much more like, well, she's just dead weight around our neck. But isn't that's the same? Ethan goes back into action because of well, he goes back into action to save her, and then he stays back in action to avenge her and, and all of that sort of I, stuff. I just think there's differences in terms of like how it's handled in and that way she's, she's it, the trigger point in Davian's trying to fuck with him stuff as well yeah like, I mean I, I don't it just, it just feels yeah. different I don't think it's great but I, mean, I also do think that like the fact that she gets stuff to do and the fact that I, I just mean, I look, mean, we're, we're talking Mission Impossible 1 that's bad at it Mission Impossible 2 that's atrocious at it Born Identity <laughs> that's okay at it Born Supremacy not good at it but I don't know probably marginally above Mission Impossible 1 so as we said like it's a low bar and so far we haven't had it be great I guess it's in contention with Born Identity and it's potentially above it but there are still things that are bothering me here like Maggie Q in particular I was like I was not a fan of how little they were asking of her that it's like hey can you just wear a sultry de- dress and yeah just... I mean that's the thing the franchise is going to get to the point where it has the kind of like three to four man team that the movie's going to rely on yeah um, and I have heard that like the women get to like really be badasses in the future installments and I'm, I'm excited for that and I, I think there's like more than one woman on the team at some point which wow uh, I could be wrong there but it's a problem with the genre it's a problem with Hollywood Bond historically awful at it but, speaking of Bond yes next week Daddy's Home Daniel Craig will be debuting in Casino Royale I Daniel honestly, Daddy yes he is I honestly don't remember how female agency will go for this one I know is it Quantum that is like real bad Quantum it? is the one that has the reference to, to Goldfinger okay with with like oh the girl's been painted gold except this time she's covered in oil. Uh-huh. This has been a very two franchise heavy show so far in a podcast that is aimed to look at three franchises. We are finally gonna look at some James Bond with the reboot with Casino Royale. I'm extremely excited for it. We have already had debates about whether it's going to be the best movie we cover in this podcast, and I'm super excited to find out if that is true. That will be next week. Go to IntoTheRealWorld.com, like, comment, subscribe, help us with algorithms and stuff, help us get discovered and and tell your friends and, and talk to us. We will talk back, probably. But yeah, until then, we don't have a cool sign-off, but go find out what the rabbit's foot is. I don't know. It's not time to die yet. (laughs) Oh, God. Secret.